You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back to the podcast today Peter Hyatt, pastor of the Sanctuary Downtown in Denver, to give us his reading of Romans 9 through 11. We will start with Romans 9 today, but our plan is to work through chapters 10 and 11 as well as soon as we can. These three chapters, 9 through 11 in Romans, are pivotal because they reveal Paul's understanding that God has a definite plan and purpose for the working out of human history. Paul's conviction was that God intervened in human affairs to orchestrate human history to God's desired ends. Although it might seem unfair to us at times the way God chooses one person over another or the way God influences people in certain directions, for Paul, all of this was in service of saving all of Israel and of ultimately showing mercy to all of humanity. Peter Hyatt has spent a lifetime contemplating, wrestling with, and trying to see the big picture of God's ultimate purposes with regard to humanity as a whole. And so I am glad to have Peter with us today to begin leading us through his reading and understanding of Romans 9 through 11. Welcome back, Peter Hyatt, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Hey, thanks, David. It's great to be here. Thanks for all that you do. Well, it's fun. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so why don't you just uh, give us some preliminary remarks uh, before we get to Romans 9? Yeah, sure. Um let me say, too, that uh, I, at least on Romans chapter 9, I preached four sermons. So um, we were not going to have time to talk about everything that was in those sermons. But if people go to uh, relentless-love.org, they can find those sermons and listen to them. So uh, Romans 9 through 11, I think, is an utterly fascinating section of scripture, but extremely challenging to talk about quickly. So um, when you read through Romans 9, through well, actually through all of Romans, and you stop and ask yourself who's talking, it's rather fascinating because Romans is, I mean, so much of Romans is simply quotations from the Old Testament. And mm-hmm. Paul is assuming that the people that are reading this story know what he's they have some idea of what he's talking about when he when he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he quotes the Psalms and Job and uh, so to, to to take a verse or two out of Romans nine through eleven and put that on your refrigerator and hang on to that without reference to the whole thing is can be really dangerous. So you know I I think C.S. Lewis said something about the Bible as a book for for grownups and. I think it is in in the sense that God wants us all to be little children in terms of faith, but He does want us to grow up when He's when He and use our minds to love Him. So what what I wanted to say at the start is I don't think people shouldn't read Romans nine through eleven unless they're willing to wrestle with the text and take the text seriously. If you don't take the text seriously. I think it will rip you to shreds because you will assume things that the text isn't saying. I think the temptation of most people coming out of the liberal church is to turn everything into metaphors, to say, well, Paul doesn't really mean that. And I hope people avoid that temptation. The temptation, I think, of conservatives 
is to change everything into law. And the evil one is really, really tricky in how he does that. And yet all of Romans is an argument against being justified uh, by the law. So as you read, let me just say, let me just say, you know, I I came out of the, I come out of the liberal church background. I went to what people think of as a progressive and liberal seminary. And I remember one of the one of the kind of the ideas that I ran across that at least some of my professors or some of the scholars that we studied was that Paul was basically just using a lot of Greek ideas and in order to try to communicate uh, Jesus to a Greek audience. And so that what you needed to do was sort of strip away all of the mythology and metaphors and yeah. all of that kind of language and get down to uh, the real historical Jesus. But what ended up is that the real historical Jesus there wasn't really anything mystical or supernatural about him. He he really, right. it, it kind of emptied him. It's It solved some problems, but then it created, to me, it created as many problems as it solved. Yeah, yeah. But both sides of the institutional church find ways of not taking Jesus seriously, not taking scripture seriously, which means you don't have to wrestle seriously. And I think what Paul would say is, um, if if you simply go in trying to make your sense of the Bible, the Bible really becomes senseless and it tears you apart. But if you let Scripture make sense of you, it will you'll die to yourself and you'll also rise with Christ. So, um, but but that raises this question then. So when you deal with Romans nine through eleven, you're really dealing with all of Scripture, and you have to ask yourself the question. Well, what is the plot of Scripture? And that's something we've been we were talking. I mean, now these sermons are a year old, but we we're talking with throughout Romans is, it, it, I think, the the judgment that runs kind of through each of us is, what whether we trust um, Jesus, which means God is salvation, or whether we trust what I call Mises, which means that I am salvation. So if you interpret Romans nine through eleven assuming, and this is what I think everyone assumes and doesn't doesn't analyze carefully, is that it's about um, me being prepared for judgment day when God will judge my will, whether my will was good or bad, which means that Mises, I am my own salvation. But if it's about uh, Jesus, well, then it's about not my will, but it's about God's will, because Jesus is the word and Jesus is the judgment and Jesus is um, the manifestation of God's will. Um, And I think we call that, and and I think what I would like to argue is that, well, God is the one who has free will. So Mm -hmm. do I read this defending this thing that I call my free will, which is really problematic because Paul has already revealed to us that we're slaves, or do I read this looking for the free will of God's? So I think for Americans, um, the, the the term free will is a problem, and it's it's really challenging in biblical exegesis because it's really hard to find an equivalent term to free will. Um, so uh, what is it that we mean by free will? I think Americans a lot of times mean their own will and ultimately this just that i can choose a or b which is which people sometimes define as chaos or randomness so if i define freedom that way as i could be one or the other without reference to anything else 
I'm trusting in chaos to save me. Yeah, I like but that I think, song. Well, that, that the really yeah. famous song that Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. You know, yeah, we exactly. That's what Which freedom, is, freedom is, is, it's all about me getting to do it my way. And yeah. that I'm, I'm, I am the master of my own ship, the captain of my own destiny, you know, exactly. wherever I want to point my ship and whatever I want to do, you know, that's all, that's all me and I yeah. get to do it. Yeah. Which is, which is such a fascinating idea because everybody's dying. And, you know, I think you can define death as when you don't get your will, even, even people that are commit suicide are trying to, well, they're trying to get their will. And, and then you ask whether their will is really effective. But I think scripture, I think Paul would say the one who's free is God. God is the one with free will. So how do we relate to the the free will of God. And and probably the terms that Paul would use would, instead of free will, he'd use something like the elect and the elector. So who is the one that makes the choice and who is the one that's choose that's chosen? And Paul would say, we're all, Paul, Paul's already established we're, we're, we're slaves. And, and in the garden, if Adam, because Paul keeps going back to the, the garden, if Adam was free before the fall, he certainly wasn't free to choose the good because he didn't know what the good was. He couldn't make an informed choice, which is the state of every little child when they're born. They, they, nobody, nobody prosecutes babies in court. And that's because they say, well, they don't have knowledge of good and evil. And so the when we whenever when when you talk through Romans nine through eleven or actually anything in Scripture, Americans um, will often just resort to this statement, and that is, "Well, God gave us free will." Mm-hmm. And I would go, "Well, what on earth do you mean by that?" Because I think Paul would say, "He did. He's he's about give. Maybe he's about giving us free will." Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, I was guilty. I was guilty of that. The denomination yeah. that that. I mean, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ a long time ago broke away from the Presbyterian Church kind of over this issue of people should have, everybody should have the freedom to choose uh, to come to God. And so um, and so that made so much sense to me. And I thought because of that, that I did not like Calvinism because yeah. Calvinism to go against that. But then it was later on when I began to understand that really my freedom only can rest in a larger freedom, which is God's freedom. And once that hit me, it was really a shock when I saw that. I mean, how could I have missed that? So I understand when I understand that it's hard for people to get this because it was hard for me to get it. I'd, I'd gone through seminary and studied the scripture, but I didn't see it for until I was 50. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, th- I think that, well, let me, you know that for me, here here are some assumptions that I'm going to come to Romans chapter nine through eleven with, that uh, we've been talking about through the Romans series, and actually I've been preaching about for the last fifteen years, ever since I, I kind of got outed for not believing that God is into eternal conscious torment. Mm-hmm. But one of the assumptions is that we're we're living out the we're living out the garden story now. So we really are living in the sixth day of creation and on the edge of the seventh, which means that we're still being created, which means that none of us is finished yet. So 
if God makes us in his image, he desires, and, and, and he's defined the way Karl Barth defines him, which I think is a good definition, is that God is the one who loves in freedom. Well, God is, wants me to be one who loves in freedom, but I'm not free uh, and, until I go through a process. So, I'm, so all of us are like little children. Mm-hmm. And we desire we're growing, freedom. We're growing. Yeah, we're growing into our freedom. Yeah. So the so the right. So the story of the Bible is the story of us being created in the image of God, or you could maybe describe it as us growing up. And the way that we grow up, the way that we become free, has to do with that tree in the middle of the garden, which I think mm-hmm. is the cross, which reveals this amazing story of grace, where we we relate to. We relate to grace as a consumer. We mm-hmm. kill the life who is the good, and we're exiled from the garden. But then the one that we kill, lo and behold, rises from the dead, and he brings us back to the garden where we yeah. surrender to God's well, mercy. And, and yeah, so instead of, believing, well, instead of believing that I am my own creator, which is my ego, I come to terms with the fact that God is the creator of me, and then that sets me free. That gives me uh free will so so but but now so let me just say this to finish this picture okay the one that's hanging on the tree um the good in flesh and the life is the free will of god the judgment of god so how i relate to the judgment of god is my judgment but the so the ultimate question is does my judgment change the judgment of god or does the judgment of God change me? And I think the reformers said it's the judgment of God that changes us, but then they didn't know what to do with their enemies. And that's why they would say, well, the judgment of God is to pick some and not pick others. So they were partway through Paul's argument, but they didn't get all the way to Romans 11.32. To 11.32. So in Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul, I think, is going to start He's going to start discussing this thing that we like to call free will. But the conclusion of Paul's argument in Romans 11.32 is God is walking every person through this story because God is interested in creating every one of his children in his own image, which is the image of the one who loves in freedom. So, sorry, I interrupted you. Well, you know, you were talking about me and we, and that's a confusing thing, you know, because... Am I me or am I we? <laughs> and yeah. what I've what I've come to understand is that this isn't just about what I do in my own life. It's also about we. It's about all of us. And I love Irenaeus's way of thinking about the recapitulation in yeah. Ephesians and how um, my free will really is connected with everybody else's free will. And so it's not just about me. And one of the things that I love about Romans 9 through 11 is if, if it is the case that God is using me in some way to accomplish God's perfect purposes, it's certainly nothing I should brag about. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because with the moment you brag about it, you're saying my judgment determines the judgment of God. The moment you worship God is the moment you say God's judgment determines my my judgment and um but, but what you said about yeah now we're, it's so cool because when you think about what is a life 
Well, a life is all of these individual parts that share the same judgment, right? Mm -hmm. So every member of my body submits to the judgment of the head, but but it, my body does it in freedom. So my body is free when all the wills come into alignment with each other. And I think what the whole story of scripture is how on earth could all the wills of all these people come into alignment with the creator? So when we get into Romans 9, we'll see, Paul kind of raises these questions, like mm -hmm. who could possibly resist God's will? And uh, if God wills everything into existence, who are we that we could resist his will? And yeah. how does he give us a new will? So that's now, the, You're going to be using the ESV, be read, reading from the ESV, but there are going to be certain points at which you think that uh, you'd like to do something a little more literal than the ESV uh, might be doing. And um, and then I thought that just for some counterpoint, um, the ESV comes with some study notes. And so I thought it would be interesting for our listeners and also to kind of make this in a conversation where maybe you get a little bit of pushback yeah. um, to quote... <laughs> to quote some of the study notes that come with the ESV. So this is going to be interesting because the ESV is a, well, if you, if you look at a Bible translations and the committees that produce them, there are a lot of reformed people that really like the ESV and they really, and the, if you read the study notes to the ESV, it follows pretty much as we will see, um, kind of the reformed tradition that you came to, to question yeah. certain parts of. Yeah. Yeah, well, so I don't know what the ESV study notes are. So that I mean, the ESV. Oh, there's an ESV. No, there's but, an. But ESV I don't know who does that. I don't know. There's an ESV study Bible. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the study so, Bible is different than the group that translates the Bible, though, right? Well, there's an ESV. There's the ESV study Bible. There's the ESV, but yeah. then there's the ESV study Bible. Like there's the NIV, and then there's the NIV study Bible. So right. the ESV comes in a version that has study notes with it. So Right. Well, I would I'm think gonna, it, would, it does it come in several versions with study notes or is it the team that translates it that's doing the study notes? Well, I mean, I don't know I, that it matters. We can talk about them either way. Well, it just but it just it what it shows is um uh, a, a way of interpreting I think Romans 9 through 11 which might come into a little bit of tension with yours and provide us, I think, some good conversation points. That's great. So bring some tension. That's cool. Um, so, <laughs> let, so let, yeah, so let's dive into Ro Romans 9. I, I, um, and let me and, and just put it in context in the book of Romans. Um, remember, Paul keeps making these statements that really are profound and amazing, and then he enters into arguments about why that statement might be, not be true. So like in Romans 1, 16, he writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so we ask the question, well, who is it that believes? Who are the believing? The Jew first, also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith uh, for faith or from faithfulness for faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness, remember, can are the same thing. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Or as Karl Barth translates it, the righteous shall live from my my faithfulness. So it kind of begs this question, well, who is faithful? Who has faithfulness? And where does faith come from? Then in Romans 3, he, he writes this in chapter 23, 
or 20, yeah, 22, 23, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And same all, all are justified. They're made righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as, um, God put forward as an atonement through faith in his blood. So the translators, if you read it literally, it's something like that, but somehow the faith is associated with his blood. And Paul made this amazing statement that um, all are justified by this. So so then it kind of begs the question, well, how does how does that come about? In 5, 18 and 19, he writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of this act of righteousness, speaking of what Christ did, leads to justification, which means to make right and and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the last Adam, the many will be made righteous. So um, faith comes from this amazing story of redemption, and Paul says it's for all. And then by and then he talks about that. Then by the time you get to Chapter eight, which is you know the last thing before Romans nine. Um, let's see here, Paul. Yeah, Paul. Uh, he makes this argument that nothing can separate us from the grace of God, which then produces, which he says produces faith within us. And it kind of asks the question: Well, yeah, but what about the Jews? In other words, what about what about our choice? Can I separate myself from the love of God in Christ Jesus? So Paul has created all these tensions in the text, and then he dives in to um, chapter 9. And uh, I, I preached four sermons on this, so maybe maybe I can draw out a few points here and there. But this is what he, he writes. Uh, okay, let's let me just real quick. I, I looked mm-hmm. this up from the ESV study Bible for the study notes. It said that the, the study notes for the different books were done by different contributors for the study Bible version of uh-huh. the ESV. It said that the person that did the notes for Romans was Thomas R. Schreiner, uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Ph.D., Fuller Theological Seminary. Yeah, so he's coming into it with probably a lot of assumptions that I kind of grew up with out of Reformed theology. Yeah, that's but why I thought it would be kind yeah. of a good counterpoint. Yeah, and and I think what people really, really struggle with coming from, well, from anything but kind of the patristic view of the first few hundred years or a Christian universalist idea is— um, the the doctrine of eternal conscious torment puts is a giant fly in the soup of reformed theology and that's why there's this the idea of limited atonement that jesus only died for some so he's going to have to do the notes and translate with this weight on his back which is god doesn't want to save everybody that's a that's a big weight if right. you're an Arminian, you say he wants to save everybody, but he can't save everybody. So there are parts of Romans 9 through 11 that Reformed people really like and parts of Romans 9 through 11 that Arminians really like. And I'm arguing that we should like the whole dang thing. But when we like the whole <laughs> dang thing, uh, God God wins. Yeah. So, well, I like I, I just I, I like it that, that these study notes 
kind of come will will come at you from the reform tradition side of things and yeah. uh, and and uh but I think it's interesting because it's going to show a different kind of interpretation than the one that you're wanting to give and be some fun conversation for us. Yeah, that's great. So so here so David here's the last verse of chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, which makes me ask, am I a thing in God's creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if, if you're reformed, you would say, well, us is only the elect, the, the chosen, which is not everyone. Um, and if you're Armenian, you, you have to say, well, oh, yeah, but. We have to choose what God chooses, which complicates things because then we can separate ourselves from the love of God. Mm -hmm. The thing that's fascinating to me is that Paul is extremely liberal with the us. He just said, so who is us? Well, most obviously, it's whoever is reading this letter. Um, so anyway, so he goes on, says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Because that, that raises an obvious question. Well, what about the Jews? So he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For literally, I was wishing, and ESV as I could wish, I was wishing that I myself were accursed and cut off, anathema. And, and th that's, that's a problem for everyone, because we've defined that as going to hell. And they go, well, who, how could anyone possibly want to go to hell? That I myself were accursed and cut off, from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the sonship, the huyothesia, the glory, the covenants, which, which would include the old covenant and the new covenant, right? So he's saying that belongs to Israel. The giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, which must include the promise, because he's going to talk about the promise a lot which is Jesus, to them belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then he says this, but it is not as though the word of God, when, and the word of God is the logos of God, the promised seed, that is Jesus, has failed. And I think this is, the, this is a huge kind of like philosophical question theological problem in scripture has the word of god failed and and that that takes us right back to the start um because god speaks a word and he creates things and everything that he creates is good so how could he speak a word and like let us make man in our own image and likeness and man is not made in his own image and likeness so so he's kind of raising the question where does evil come from? Um, which is which is fascinating a question that he's going to now wrestle with. For not all, um, and ESV says who are descended from, but but a more liberal translation is all uh, not all those or that of Israel is Israel. Um, would be a literal translation. I think the ESV says, not all who are descended from Israel uh, be belong to Israel. And as soon as we read that, we start asking the question, well, how come? How, how, could, how could part of Israel resist 
God's word and and what is Israel and the the moment he says that something in me wants to draw a line between good and evil and separate myself I I I'm tempted into making all of these these judgments so so what I end up doing is uh, putting myself in the role of the judge and I begin judging others out and judging others judging others in I start making choices um, so let me let me just keep reading and he says. Um, not all uh, those or that of Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his seed, his his sperm. But through Isaac shall your seed be named. And and now it's really important that that people remember the whole story and go back to the text. So. When Americans read the word Israel, we immediately think of a country over in the Middle East. But Paul wasn't thinking of that country in the Middle East. The the nation of Israel hadn't been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And even then, it wasn't really Israel. It was Judah. Uh, it, it all goes back to the children of a man named Israel. So if I think of the nation state of Israel, I get really confused. What does he mean? Not all of Israel is Israel. But immediately after he says Israel, he talks about Abraham. And then he talks about Isaac. And he's going to come back to Jacob, who actually is Israel. So when Paul says Israel, it helps me to remember that Paul was thinking of a man. So when he says not all of Israel is Israel, he's saying not all of Jacob is is Israel. He could also be saying not all of Israel is Jacob. It's like saying not all of Abraham is Abraham and not all of Isaac is Isaac. And it's like saying not all of Peter Hyatt is Peter Hyatt, which then is it raises this, which is what Paul has been talking about throughout Romans, that there is a true self and there's a, a false self. There's a, there's a, there's an, there's an Israel that believes he's chosen by God. And then there's an Israel that believes he chooses God. And and that I think you could define as Jacob. But it helps me remember that he's thinking of of, of people. And it's, it's like saying not all of Peter is the real Peter. Um, and so then he goes on and he talks about Abraham. And remember... Uh, He's, he says, not all our children are of Abraham because they are his offspring. And that messes us up too, because the word in Greek is sperma. And Paul, you know, goes on in Galatians to say, well, th- really the story of the whole Bible is about this sperma. From from the very start, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. And, and the whole Bible is asking this question, where is that seed? So, you know, when you get into the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the huge thing is that there's this promised seed, and Paul has already been talking about the seed. And so the question is, well, where is the seed, and what is the seed? Well, Paul is making this huge argument that Jesus is the seed. And what is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the goodwill of God. He's the judgment of God. He's he's, uh, free will. Um, So... I'll, why don't I just keep reading and then we can go back. Let's read down through, maybe we can read down through verse 13 and then we can go back and talk about it. 
Okay. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. And you've got to ask yourself, what is the flesh? Who are the children of God? But the children of the promise. And remember, that's the promised seed that are counted as seed. So this seed gives rise to more seed. For this is what the promise said. And, and now this is, and, and literally he would say, this is the word of the promise, which is utterly fascinating because now we have a talking promise and he's going to keep coming back to this. But if you know the story from Genesis, that's, that's the wild thing, that the word is this God-man and the word man shows, or the God man shows up and he talks to Abraham and, and he talks about a promise and he himself is, is the promise. For this, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And, and now remember, Abraham has tried everything he, he can in the story to produce the son and he can't produce the son. But now the son is going to come through a miracle. In other words, the son is not produced by Abraham's choice. The son is this miracle that is clearly God's choice. And not only so, all, and not only so but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man. And this is where the, this is where the translators, they try to you know, be a proper. But it doesn't say by one man. It says by one coitin which the translation is really clear. It's coitus. It means sexual, having a sexual encounter. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one sex act, in other words, act of sex, one coitus, um, by one, coit- one, one sex act with our forefather, Isaac. So, so that now you, now we're back to the story of, of, uh, of, um, let's see. Yeah. Yeah, so we're back to the story of Rebecca and and Isaac, and, and you remember that um, when Rebecca gets pregnant, she's pregnant with twins, and God says the older will serve the younger, and that's Jacob and Esau. So though they they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad or evil, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So in other words, the huge mystery for Israel is, who was Jacob, is why did God choose us? <laughs> what is it about us that God chose? And over and over throughout the Old Testament, he says, well, it's not because you're better than everybody else. It's to show that I'm the chooser. And the story of Jacob and Esau is so fascinating because God makes this choice before Jacob or Esau could choose. So, um, and then Jacob becomes Israel in the most bizarre way. He steals the blessing from the firstborn. And all of this is fascinating because Jesus is the firstborn. And scripture, when we went to the cross, we kind of tried to steal the blessing from Jesus. Scripture says we were jealous of Jesus. We all wanted to make ourselves Jesus. So we crucified Jesus. So. Um, we try to steal the blessing. We're like Jacob. We try to steal the blessing from the firstborn. And then lo and behold, the firstborn wants to give the blessing to us. That's the shock about Jesus. Anyway, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is, as it is written. And, and this is written in the book of, of Joel, like 1500 years later, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated not hate, but, but hated which is a which is a fascinating statement because 
we would all sin to say, oh, that, that can't be right. And yet if you follow the word hated throughout the Old Testament, God ends up hating everyone. He hates everyone that does evil, but he hates them because he loves them. So Israel ends up being hated as well. And and the wild thing about the promise is that Jacob is going to bless all the nations of the world, which would include his brother Esau, which becomes the nation of Edom. So so but but so Paul just throws out all these all these um examples um and 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 i and he's and he and back to our original question when he says not all of israel is israel well now he's back to israel who is jacob so it's like saying not all of jacob is israel which is a lot and then if you follow the story of the bible not all of israel it turns out is israel because the true israel is jesus um the promised seed, the blessing, the is is Jesus. So, not all is uh, promised seed. So that's the that's the picture that he paints. So let, let me keep let's keep reading for a minute here, and then come back because and let him finish his argument. So he he cites all these examples, and you say, well, Paul, why are you retelling the all this wild story of the Old Testament? And he says, what shall we then say? Is there injustice? which is unrighteousness on God's part. That's the obvious question. Well, God, why on earth would you choose one baby over another baby? Why, why is, why would, um, why would you, why do Lazarus and, or Eliezer and Ishmael lose the blessing from Abraham? And yet Isaac is, the, all this question, it just all seems incredibly unfair to us. If we think that fairness, if we think is justice, th that we should be rewarded for our good deeds, it, it all seems incredibly unfair. And he says, well, hell no. And then this is why. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, and this is his whole point, it depends not on human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And now that's the statement right there that all sorts of wars were fought over, um, and that terrifies everyone, because that's, that's double predestination, um, that he uh, predestines some to be hardened. And then you have to ask, well, what does that mean to be hardened? And that he has mercy on some. And you have to ask, what does it mean to have mercy? But then this raises an obvious question in the soul of every person. Well, on whom does God choose to have mercy? And that's, what, that's Paul's point. That he ends it, that he concludes this section of Romans in Romans eleven thirty two, when he says God has consigned all to disobedience. In other words, when you follow the story all the way through the Bible, all of humanity is consigned to disobedience. And and what is that? Well, that's giving us up to our own choice. And what is our choice? Well, our choice is to harden our own hearts and only care about ourselves, uh, the, the, to be trapped within ourselves, which is that old man that Paul's been talking about. 
and then what it that's our judgment our judgment um is to harden ourselves and he gives us up he paul already says this he gives us up to our own judgment but then who does he have mercy on on well paul says well everyone that he allowed to be hardened so he has mercy on all and what is his mercy well that's this incredible seed that's being passed down from the foundation of the earth that somehow was in the woman in the garden who took the fruit from the tree so paul is telling this long long amazing story and but if we go to the story assuming that if if any every person who dies without saying the sinner's prayer at the end of the four spiritual laws book god endlessly tortures well this whole thing becomes absolutely absurd and utterly terrifying but if we go back and assume what Paul, uh, Paul's conclusion that God consigns all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all, well, then everybody is Jacob at some point, and everybody is uh, Israel at some point, and everybody is Esau at some point. And um, th- there's a part of me that is chosen by God that is eternal, and there's a part of me that I choose, which is my ego, Mm-hmm. which is a temporal illusion in which I live. And, and so I should mention this. It's because the picture just changes dramatically. So you, so the, you ask that question, um, who could resist God's will? I think Paul would say, well, nobody can truly resist God's will because God's will is free. So if you think you have free will, well, you're trapped in an illusion. In other words, you're trapped in a bad dream, which is fascinating because Paul's going to say, it's time to wake up toward the ends of Romans. Like you got to wake up this this illusion that you're in control, and so many things here at once. But but this is a fascinating thing to think about. I when do I have an illusion that I my will is free? Um, well, probably all the time because I think I determine my own destiny. I think I determine my own creation and salvation. But one place where I certainly have a free will is in my dreams. Um, I just think a thought and I create a world, right? That is this false world. And so, so where do we, who is it that resists God's will? Well, it's all of us. How do, well, when do I, Peter Hyatt, manufacture a false reality? Well, when I dream a dream and my dream starts out as this world that I create, but then it can also turn into a, a nightmare because in the dream, I'm ultimately alone. It's only Peter Hyatt. He's dreaming up all these people in his dream. But, the, but then a word usually wakes me from my dream that comes from reality. And when I wake up, I enter back into the real world. So I think, I think a, a big picture that Paul is working here is that we all dream this false reality of called Mises, where Peter is his own creator, savior, and redeemer. But there's a word that enters, that can enter into that false reality, like the promised seed, the word of truth, the word spoken. Like you could picture my father waking me from a bad dream. And he and he's and the word is Peter, you're dreaming. You're dreaming. This isn't this isn't real. You're creating your own your own world. So um anyway, the the big point is he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's the point that Paul is making 
in those first 18 verses of, of Romans. Yeah, we've, um, um, when it comes to the story, God has orchestrated it so that we've all been on the wrong side of the story at a certain point. So nobody should be, you know, pointing fingers at anybody else because yeah. we've all, we've all been, we've all gotten it wrong as a human, as a humanity. We've all been, you know, we've all been wrong, but there is a way in which, and I want to read this now in, in, and you've alluded to this, but there's a way in which this is not read as God, you know, the fairness uh, or the unfairness of God as God works out God's ultimate redemptive and elective purposes for having mercy upon all of creation. There's a way in which you can read it in the Reformed tradition read it in which God is, this is an explanation of why God is not going to save everybody. So in the, in this ESV study Bible, so on the note on Romans nine, six to seven is even though many Jews have failed to believe God's promise to them has not failed for there was never a promise that every Jewish person would be saved. It was never the case that all the physical children of Abraham were truly part of the people of God. For Genesis 21, 12 teaches that the line of promise is traced through Isaac, not Ishmael. Then the, the note on verse 8 said, The words children of God show that Paul is thinking of salvation. See 8.16, which talks about the Spirit bears witness that we are the children of God. And hence, he is not thinking merely of physically blessings, physical blessings given to Israel. The note on uh, verses 9 and 10 says, The promise was not given to Hagar, but was specifically given to Sarah and her offspring. The birth of Esau and Jacob is further evidence that God did not promise that every person of Jewish descent would be saved, for they had the same father and mother and were even twins, yet God chose Jacob and not Esau. The, the note on verse 11 says, God did not choose Jacob on the basis of anything, and Jacob or Esau's life, but to achieve the fulfillment of God's purposes of election. Christians can be assured, therefore, that God's promise will be fulfilled because it depends solely on, upon his will. The contrast between works and calling shows that salvation is in view, not merely the historical destiny of Israel as a nation. Uh, the note on verse 12 says, The promise given to Rebekah was that God had chosen the younger Jacob over the old Esau, one of the themes in Romans 9 through 11 is that God works in surprising ways so no one can ever presume on his grace. Uh, the verse on the, the note on 13 says the citation of Malachi 1, 2 to 3 also shows that God set his saving love on Jacob and rejected, hated Esau. Hated is startling. But as a sinner, Esau did not deserve to be chosen by God who remains just in not choosing everyone. The salvation of anyone at all comes only from God's mercy. The note on uh, verses 14 to 15 says, Since God chose Jacob instead of Esau before they were born, without regard to how good or bad either of them would be, the question naturally arises, is God just in choosing one over the other? God is just because no one deserves to be saved, and the salvation of anyone at all is due to God's mercy alone, as the citation of Exodus 33:19 affirms. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on uh, whom I will have compassion. So that's, you can kind yeah. of, it, just reading all those notes together, I'm sure that's familiar to you, that yeah. way of l working through it. I'm sure that kind of thing is familiar to you coming out of your uh, re Reformed background. Yeah, it's all familiar to me, and it's all it's all correct. I agree with all of it except that so if you talk about it's it's reformed theology so if you talk about the five points of calvinism 
it's all correct except it's all wrong in in another sense because the the point is what the the point is they're making is that God chooses to have mercy on whom he has mercy and that's his prerogative that's entirely his choice well, all of reality is his choice the fact that anything exists at all is his choice the fact that we're having this conversation is is his choice so once you once you establish it's all his choice you obviously have to ask the question so what's his choice well that's what all of that's what all of romans is about is god chooses to consign all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all and th- th- right after paul says that, he says oh the depth of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of god how inscrutable are his judgments and unsearchable his ways so what is the the commentator in the ASV study notes doing well they're assuming that they understand the details of his judgment and that god can't save esau but the the point of the blessing in the very beginning to abraham and this is this is Boy, this is such a fascinating topic. But you remember that to Abraham, God says, those who curse you, I will curse, and those who bless you, I will bless. In other words, Abraham, you will become the judgment of all things. But then he says this other thing, too. And he says, and in you, all the nations of the earth, all the peoples, that would include Edom, that would, that would include the people of Ishmael, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, um, your choice is going to agree with God's choice to bless all people. The only way that that could possibly be true is that the free will of God to love becomes the free will of humanity until in the end everybody loves. And that's exactly what all of Scripture reveals. And, and the things that he cites as examples, if you go back and follow those stories— they're astounding because it's not just it's not just Jacob that is hated throughout the Old Testament. That's the shock. Everyone gets hated, even Jesus, who numbers himself with the transgressors. But the one that hates is love. And what is it that he hates? He hates the fact that Peter Hyatt has believed the lie. He hates the false self that Peter Hyatt has constructed. He hates the nightmare in which I'm trapped. Why is that? Well, because he wants to liberate the one he created from that nightmare. And and the nightmare is that I'm my own judge, my own creator. And that's why I look at the at the world and judge everyone, trying to justify myself. But when I wake from the illusion, I realize that God has justed me and I am his child. So the story of so the, the way to get around the arguments, and he said a whole bunch of things, is to go back to the stories and take them seriously. And it, Scripture does talk about all of Israel being saved. He's going to—that's the irony, is Paul's whole point is part of Israel is rejected, but they're going to be accepted. Part of humanity is rejected, but they're going to be accepted. Even part of you is rejected— which is that false self, but it's going to be transformed into the true self and be accepted. So we'd have to go back to every sentence that that guy said, which is kind of what I've been doing for the last 30 years of my life. And just call BS. It's just BS. I, I mean, it, and this is the insanity to me. I just need to say this, and which makes it almost impossible to talk about Romans 9 through 11 
this is where I love some of the things that like David Bentley Hart has said, where he loses it on your show. And the ultimate irony is that people would use Paul's argument in Romans 9 through 11 to explain why God doesn't have mercy on all. And that's Paul's concluding statement, which then turns into this crescendo throughout the, the rest of the book of Romans, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and he's quoting Isaiah. So when you go back to the story uh, in Isaiah, and if Paul keeps quoting Isaiah, Isaiah ends with all flesh in the valley of Gehenna being consumed, and all people standing at the edge of Jerusalem thanking God for what he's done, which is delivering them from themselves, which are the bodies, the corpses being consumed in the valley of Gehenna. When you follow the story of Israel and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, well, Ezekiel says that God raises the dry bones of Israel, and he says specifically to Ezekiel, now Ezekiel, this is the whole house of Israel. This is everybody in Israel. Paul's going to go on in 9 through 11 to talk about the Israel that rejects God. And then he's going to say, well, God saves all Israel. And all Israel is the Israel that rejected him, the Israel that accepted him. Why? Because of the promised seed. So God, so in the story in Isaiah, you know, as God whittles Israel down. So, so not, all of, not all of Abraham is the real Abraham. Not all of, the real I, of Isaac is the real Isaac. Not all of Jacob is the real Jacob. Not all of Israel is Israel. In the end, Israel becomes this one man who is the Messiah, who we crucify on a tree, which brings us back to the garden where we believe the illusion that we created ourselves. And lo and behold, that one man, that seed, is given to each of us, and that becomes the judgment of God within each of us. And Paul's point is that it's not, when he's going to say this, it's not he says it's not human will or exertion that does this. It's God that does this. So so what is it that God does? Well, he tells us over and over again, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to make everything good. I'm going to save. My judgment is to save. And then we say, well, we judge that you really can't save all, which is, I think it's just, it's nuts. And, and I don't know how, I mean, I, I guess I just feel a little, I go crazy because I'm like, I, I don't know how, well, I go crazy because I go, how do you not see this? And I think I know the answer. And that is that at the deepest level of every person, they either trust themselves to save themselves or they trust God to save themselves. And once you realize that God has redeemed you through no merit of your own, and this is where the reformers got it right, well, then there's this impulse to say, well, God, why can't you save everyone? And mm -hmm. I, I, that's what, and that's what happens in Scripture. Now, this is fascinating because I, let me mention this real quickly. Paul then says, so then he has mercy on whoever, he hardens whomever he wills, he has mercy on ever who he wills. And what is his mercy? His mercy is to sacrifice himself, right? So um, the ultimate, the decision of God is revealed in Christ Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He offers himself as a sacrifice for all of Israel. Well, remember what Paul said at the start of this argument. He said, if I could, I was wishing that I could offer my sacrifice for all of Israel. Well, mm -hmm. he can't yeah. offer himself as a sacrifice for all of Israel in one sense because Jesus has already done it. And yet he does in another because Paul, 
we all know the story. Paul gives up his life for the gospel in an effort to save Israel and save all of humanity. And why does he do that? Well, he does that not because he's trying to get saved. He does that because he is saved. In other words, the free will of God has now become the free will of this guy named Saul, but not all of Saul was Paul. <laughs> um, or, you know, he, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the decision of God shows up in Paul, and that's the seed that's being passed down through humanity until it's revealed um, in Jesus. And, and that's the picture in Isaiah, because remember Isaiah, he, he sees God in the temple and God burns his lips. And then Isaiah is called to go and preach Israel down to a root or a stump. And the stump or the root is the promised seed. So Paul is referencing all these stories that have profound meaning. And Paul is saying that what all these stories mean is God consigns all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So, I, sorry, I, it's, but, it, but it's, it's a paradigm shift. And it's hard talking about paradigm shifts because everything, everything changes and yet everything remains the same. Well, what uh, I, I just put together this little summary and let me, uh, what I think was going on, let me give this and then we can continue on reading some more scripture. But, but I thought that what's being discussed in Romans 9 to 11, culminating in 1132, is the fairness of God in determining, determining who is elect to represent God's saving purposes in the world, not who God finally wants to save. So God gets to choose how and through whom God will bring salvation to all. The way God elects representatives may not seem fair to us. That's okay. That means none of us can brag if we are chosen to be part of the elect who mediates God's ultimate purposes. However, we can trust that God's Messiah and God's elect will not fail with regard to God's ultimate purpose to be all in all at the end of the ages. Yeah, well, that, that's so a, well, there's a huge there's a huge point there. Once you start talking about election, so like the the guy you quoted, he assumes that it's elect unto salvation, but clearly, um, he's Paul's even going to talk about this. It's, I think it's in eleven. He starts talking about the fact that. Israel, um, Israel is the enemy of God. The Israel that rejects Jesus, they're they're the enemies. And yet he says, but um, they they, how does he put it? But they're elect for the sake of the promise. In other words, and 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 this happens in the story that Israel is elect, and yet they're also rejected. So when you get into the Old Testament, so you have to ask, elect for what? Chosen for what and i so if so if people are saying you know is peter hyatt just making this stuff up because he's insane what i'm saying is the theology of like carl bart and the torrents and and torrents i mean I, th I think the most thorough exposition of roman so far is bart's exposition and bart says well it's clear that we're all rejected in time to learn that we're elected for all eternity and so, and, and, and what is the thing that's rejected? The me that believes I am my own salvation. And what is the thing that's elected? The me that knows I am God's salvation. And when, so when you follow the story through, it's clear that everyone is rejected. Uh, every false self is rejected, but we're all rejected so that we can learn that we have been elected. So, so here, here's the huge point of election. I, there's so much to say, and I get confused where we are in talking about this. But the point of election is that God elects, 
And see, do you see, in other words, the point is that God has free will. And we make it all about our election. And saying that God elects some and he doesn't elect others, I think is a sneaky way for people to believe that they somehow deserve salvation. And it's just, it's the opposite of what Paul's conclusion is going to be. Yes, God, he, God's, well, one of the things that I when studying Calvinism was the idea of unconditional election. So election is not based on any condition that human beings achieve. It's a prior decision by God so that nobody gets to brag about it. Exactly, so exactly, you can't, exactly. Peter, Peter Hyatt can't run around heaven and say, uh, well, uh, glad we're all here, but I do. <laughs> it's like the, the star, you're the star-bellied snitch because you, you, Peter Hyatt, made the good choice. And therefore, it was because you made your good choice that you were part of the way that God mediated salvation yeah. uh, to humanity. And no, no, that's not that's not right. Well, and this is this is the huge problem with hell, not only for Arminians but for Calvinists, and that is hell postulates the eternal or the endless existence of this place where people's choice is stronger than God's choice. So hell is this place where people endlessly disagree with God. Well, that's a that's a real problem. How mm-hmm. how could a person's judgment, no matter how you define hell, you would say the people in hell they don't agree with God. If if they agreed that it was good, that everything was good, and they were good, and well, that would be heaven. But if people endlessly disagree with God, that means that they can resist God's will endlessly. Mm-hmm. And, and if God you know, if God knows the end from the beginning, like that's another thing about Calvinism that I thought was interesting. Isaiah 46.10 is a text that I learned from Calvinists who said that God knows the end from the beginning. Okay, well, if that's the case, then these people that are eternally resisting God uh, and who never come to any resolution and sort of live in that frustration eternally, that's not something that God is surprised about. That's not an accident of creation. It's a feature of it that God anticipated from the beginning and I guess signed off on, which yeah. is troubling. Right. And it's just in opposition of Romans eleven thirty-two. But see, the Armenians have the same problem. Exactly. Everybody agrees that God knows the end from the beginning if they have any faith at all in what scripture says. So the Armenians is why would God create people that he yeah that will eternally disagree with them. But it's the same problem for Calvinists as well. And open, and open, 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 theism, yeah. open theism tries to get away from that, saying that God, yeah, open and open, in process theology tries to get uh, away from that, saying that God doesn't know the end from the beginning. Right, and that's that's the liberal answer, which in other words just means we'll throw out the Bible. And I'm going, well, once you throw out the Bible, like just go with whatever. I mean, but if we're going to do the, if we're going to do the Jesus thing and the Paul thing, it's absolutely clear that Paul has this immense respect for Scripture. And it's absolutely clear that Jesus has this immense respect for Scripture. And when you let Scripture speak for itself, Paul and Jesus agree. They, I mean, the, it's remarkable to me how much Paul and Jesus and all the Old Testament agree. So Paul is making the argument here that the New Covenant is totally in the Old Testament. And it is. The, I mean, God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's all before the covenant of law. It's all beautiful, and it's all this beautiful picture that's really profoundly simple, and that is God is going to make you in his image, and he's going to succeed. 
So you are in the process of observing of, of observing your own creation. And well, how is it that God creates his own free will in us? Well, that's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. All right. Well, we've got some more scripture to read. So yeah, yeah. That's read, so well, we, we, this you, is so we've much, already made a lot, we've made a lot of comments. So why don't you go ahead and just read? Yeah, this is where I, I want people to read. Oh, and let me let me just read my conclusion to this for, first sermon. Okay. So I wrote at the start of chapter nine. Far from rejoicing in the condemnation of his brothers, Paul claims to have been praying that he himself would be anathema, a devoted offering for Christ and for the Israelites. And it seems that God answers his prayer, for it wasn't just Paul that was praying, but it was the sacred seed, the promised seed. It was love incarnate in Paul. The Israelites soon imprisoned Paul in Jerusalem, sent him to Rome for execution. Paul did die for Israel, the one that flogged him, tortured him, and condemned him. But now he is sitting at a banquet with all of them laughing in freedom, his brethren. Romans eleven twenty six. in this way, all Israel will be saved. And verse 32, God will have mercy on all. If you don't like it, too bad. God has free will. God is love. So to all those Calvinists that say, I say, well, Scripture reveals God's will. And if you don't like it, too bad. God God gets his will. And Paul's going to reveal God's will. And, All right, we'll keep on okay. keep on reading All right. the rest so, of, of so chapter at 14, 9. Yeah, so at 14 it said, What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, and I would say it is everything. It's not just one small thing. It's everything. It's creation. So then everything depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And and now Pharaoh was, was hardened, but it's interesting to ask, well, how was Pharaoh hardened? Well, Pharaoh thought his will was stronger than God's will. So he was living in this dream world, this illusion, and God gave him up to it for a time. So then he has mercy on whomever he, he, uh, he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So then God, uh, let's see here. That's uh, yeah. when you said so that. Let me just go back real quick. When uh, you said so that it depends, it everything. When you said it or everything depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Yeah, I remember when it was about ten years ago when I was really wrestling through all of this. I'll just say I was coming out of my Arminian state, and <laughs> I was really wrestling with Calvinism. And I was wrestling with all of this, and I remember one point I just woke up and it was just like, ah, uh, everything is grace. It's yeah. like, yeah. it was, it's, it was, like, oh, wait a it's so simple. Everything it, is grace. And I, was, I really like the way, so then the, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Well, that basically just saying, well, everything is grace and it's all about God who has mercy. Yeah. 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 And that's how God is going to create faith in his children by exhibiting his mercy. But, and then that's the story of the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. But yeah, so it's the most obvious thing in the world, because if God creates out of nothing, well, everything is grace. I can't right. pay for anything. It's so <laughs> Even my goodwill, I go, my goodwill is it. The fact that I choose God, my faith is a gift. And that's Paul's right. point. Faith is a gift. It, it, so anyway, okay, so verse 19. So then this raises this obvious question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will and and now that's back to that that thing we were talking about who can resist his will that's the huge mystery in scripture 
But then there's a second question is, why does he still find fault? And that's a fascinating question because you can find you can define that in different ways. So we use the word blame, for instance. But the way God blames is really different than the way we blame. We blame saying you should have known better, right? But it's really hard to find that in Scripture. So so God will say you have fault, but it's not like He blames as if you could have known better. Which takes us back to the garden story and the amazing thing that happens. You know when God yeah. when God comes along and says, "What did you do?" He doesn't say, "Oh, I never expected this," or "You should have known better." Because the whole point of the story is, how would they have known better? They don't have the knowledge of yeah. Good and evil. Well, I like it. And when listening to your sermons, you say that you know. God, Jesus, doesn't ever enter into the blame game. Yeah. Not a blamer. Yeah. God isn't like a blamer and a shamer. Yeah. <laughs> well, right, because ultimately, if you really believe that God speaks all things into existence, and this is the this is the fascinating this is a fascinating theme throughout the Bible. It's like, okay, you want to blame? God says, Do you want to blame? Well, let's follow the blame train. And and ultimately the blame train takes you back to a garden. And who is the one that we're blaming ultimately? Well, it's the creator. And yet, look, there's the creator. He's hanging on a tree, um, suffering for us. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't blame us, um, but he does reveal our sin, which is that we took from the tree in, in the first place. He does find fault, but why does he find fault? In order to reveal his mercy and what is his mercy is that he doesn't blame everything is a gift so it's such a fascinating question why does he still find fault and and i guess that's a good question that we should ask each other why do i find fault in my neighbor do i find fault in my neighbor because i'm trying to justify myself or do i find fault in my neighbor so that i can help my neighbor understand that he's justified that he's made right so so a doctor finds fault but the doctor doesn't blame you for a congenital condition that you were born with. The doctor finds the fault so that then he can help you solve the problem. Yeah. There's but another guys, thing in, yeah. in recovery, in recovery uh, language. Yeah. There's a little saying, you spot it, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. another thing about it. But, too, so the it? whole recovery thing is so great because it's not about finding fault to blame. Yeah. It's just seeing the fault. And once you see it, it's the light that heals the fault. Yeah, and that sometimes it, it's by the very way that you are tempted to find fault in others that you're illuminated by the true state of your own condition. Yeah, yeah. And old, and remember, that's the thing that Paul points out the very start of Romans. He goes through, he tempts us into finding fault, remember, with all these different sins. And then he says, and, and you are guilty man. of the very same thing, yeah. oh, man. oh man. But oh, oh man. man, oh Adam, because you're finding fault in all these other people, and that's the fault with you that you're playing the blame game, and it takes you back to the tree to the one who lifts his head and says, "Father, forgive them; they know not what they do." So that's the wild thing, is that Jesus says we don't know when we nail him to the tree, yeah. but we come to know. Because he ends up giving us his life. So it's, it's funny, Romans, a, Romans 1, it, we're kind of, I've got a, I live in yeah. Arkansas, and we've got some really twisty roads around here. And Romans 1, 
you can get a lot of speed going downhill, feel, feeling like, man, I'm feeling good about myself. I got this all worked out. And then you hit this really sharp turn. And at Romans 2, if you're not careful, you'll just run right off the road. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, because Paul is planning for you to crash. Yeah. And Paul's point is God planned for everyone to crash. That's the whole point. Because we think we're in charge. And when we crash, we're not in charge. So, yeah. But, and so, but then, and then, so, okay. So he, sa- he says that in 19. And then he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Which is another fascinating question. How is it that there are these people that somehow argue with their creator? That's like a deeply philosophical question. And yet it's so so familiar because you go, well, if we're children, what do we want from children? We want children who argue with us, right? I mean, if my, I I kind of, my children have all argued with me. I kind of expected them to disagree with me because that's part of growing up and creating them in my own image. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, will the plasma from Plasso say to its molder, the Plassoer, the one that's creating it, why have you why have you made me like this? And that's an interesting question. I think that's what when we feel shame or we feel pride, it's going we're all struggling with that. Why am I like this? Because I should be something else. I'm judging myself. He says, has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump, one lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God desiring, and, and it's what if, he doesn't say this is, he says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured, born with much patience, vessels of wrath uh, or orge or passion prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him, which he has prepared before him for glory. And that, so this launches into the second, the second huge topic in Romans nine is what is a, what is a vessel of, of wrath? And it's interesting in, I preach this, I, the second one, I, I preach a sermon. What, what, what was it called? Um, this third sermon I titled it, um, oh, where is that now? Oh, here it is. Angry Birds and Vessels of Wrath. And I talked about this bird last spring that kept flying into our window, and we couldn't figure Mm -hmm. out why the bird was so angry. And my daughter got online finally, because it just like was driving us nuts, this bird constantly flying into the glass window. And she discovered that in spring, robins will, some if the light is right, they'll, and it always happened in the morning, robins will see their reflection in a mirror or a, a window and think it's a competitor and they'll just start attacking the competitor. And it's, and, and then it just becomes this angry bird that beats itself up. Um, and when he talks about vessels of wrath, you have to, have to ask the question, who's wrath? So Paul talks about wrath differently throughout Romans. And God's wrath seems to have this purpose. But he also talks about the wrath of humanity. The vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. But the vessels of mercy are prepared beforehand by God. 
God points that out. God prepares these vessels of mercy beforehand. In other words, the vessels of mercy, it's a thing that God does. And what God does endures forever, according to Scripture, according to Ecclesiastes 3. So the vessel of mercy is this creation of God. But he doesn't say God creates the vessels of wrath, or, or, or he, doesn't, well, he doesn't say God prepares the vessels of wrath. Um, and so you've got to ask the question, well, who's wrath? And a, a vessel of wrath is a vessel maybe that's empty. And you remember that Paul talked about the tupos earlier in, in Romans 5, that the first Adam is a tupos or a type of the last Adam, that the first Adam is like the imprint of, of the last Adam in like a mold or, or clay. Well, that's fascinating because that's why, getting back to the angry bird, the angry bird is projecting an image of itself and then it's attacking that image of itself. Our false self is an image of ourself. This is what Paul has been showing us throughout Romans, that we each create this ego, which is my projection of who I should be. And how do I get the projection of who I should be? Well, I get it by taking knowledge of good and evil from the tree. Why is Peter Hyatt so angry? Because when I'm honest, I have to go, yeah, Peter Hyatt's pretty angry. Well, it's because I have an image of who Peter Hyatt should be, and Peter Hyatt keeps failing to be Peter Hyatt. So Peter Hyatt gets mad at Peter Hyatt. Peter Hyatt gets mad at God. Peter Hyatt thinks it's his job to create himself in the image of God, and that makes him makes him angry. So I am a vessel of wrath. I'm a vessel of my own wrath. And maybe God has wrath on my own wrath against me. But Paul isn't saying whose wrath it is or whatever. The wrath of God is this amazing thing in, in this in the story, but my old self, if I'm honest, is a vessel of wrath. I'm ticked off that I'm not who I think I should be. Um, but the vessel, the true self, is the self that's at peace because I am who God made me to be. So, yeah. Say, when I was in uh, seminaries, one of the professors explained to me that you could say that, that like some uh, some instruments are set apart for a special purpose or made holy for a special purpose. And he talked about, for instance, you could say like surgical like uh, surgical instruments are set apart and cleaned and made holy in a certain way. But the reason they're done that is so that they can make a clean and pure cut so that they can separate the healthy from the unhealthy. They can, they can, they can heal and cure. And that's, that, that has helped me to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so gosh, the vessels of mercy is something we'll talk about through the rest of nine. Th so it has really so many applications the thing that I think is fascinating about that tupas or that type, that empty vessel, is that empty vessels make me angry. I think something should be in them that's not in them. The law says Peter Hyatt should love, but trying to fulfill the law, I realize that I don't love. I'm angry that love is not in me. Well, but that's what Paul's going to talk about. How does love come into you? So, but, but that vessel of wrath is... An, an empty vessel, it's empty of substance. It's like that, it's like that false dream. It's like that tupas, it's like that, it's like that false self. And check this out, it's prepared for destruction. In other words, this is not something that lasts. So Karl Barth would, Karl Barth would argue, and so would David Bentley Hart, so would a whole many great theologians, 
Paul's whole argument is that we are each a vessel of wrath in time in order to reveal that we are a vessel of mercy for all eternity. And Paul says in Ephesians, we were all, um, he says, we're all children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, all of us have been vessels of wrath. And if you go back to what Paul said above, um, well, Israel was a vessel of wrath in order to reveal the, the true Israel. Israel has to be destroyed to be created. So um, anyway, so shall I keep reading? Yeah, let's go ahead. Okay, because, yeah, um, prepared for destruction in, in order. Why? What is the vessel of, there's this temporal vessel of wrath, in order to make known the riches of his glory, which is his mercy, we'll find out, his glory, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. So for glory. So, and this is a fascinating thing to think with about the Tupas. There can be no vessel of wrath without a vessel of mercy. So the vessel of mercy is the eternal thing, and the vessel of wrath is is the imprint of the vessel of mercy. And the ultimate vessel of mercy, of course, is is Jesus. So, um, and then it says, uh, which he has prepared before him for glory, even us whom he has called. So people that are that are called are people that are that God has created, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people. Now this is so important because Paul lined us up for the crash of the curve, right? Now he's going to crash us. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, sounds like vessels of wrath, right? Not my people as vessels of wrath. I will call my people. Well, what that means the vessels of wrath he's going to call vessels of mercy because who are his people well those are vessels of mercy and her who was not beloved or no mercy is also what she's called in the book of hosea that's got to be a vessel of wrath the one who has no mercy i will call beloved and that's definitely a vessel of mercy and then he says this and in the very place and the word is tapas which is a lot like tupas where it was said to them you are not my people there, in that place, um, they will be called sons of the living God. It's just an astounding statement uh, because he's clearly saying that we're all vessels of wrath in time in order to reveal that we are sons of God in eternity. So um, now there's a whole lot more to the Hosea story, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this is how I let me just read this conclusion to this. A uh, third sermon. Um, I, I, in the summary, I concluded it this way. He said, Before you know it, you will see Jesus. And I imagine that he'll be filled with fire and shining brighter than the sun. And you'll be tempted to run and hide in outer darkness, for you have been a vessel of wrath. And you will see that all your wrath has been directed at him. <laughs> but look again, and you will see that all his wrath is directed against your wrath with which you keep yourself and him imprisoned. Because remember, Paul talked about how the word is, or he's going to talk about, too, how the word is imprisoned within us. For he, for he has descended into your prison of unbelief and anger as a seed, a seed of indestructible hope. His wrath upon your wrath is infinite mercy. 
All your wrath is the product of attempting to justify yourself and your world, and his wrath upon your wrath is the revelation that you have always been justified. It's grace. So it's such a, I think it's such a beautiful picture when you finally see it. It's so hard to see because we assume that we're our own savior, and we also don't realize that we're at the edge of space, time, and eternity. So there is a Peter Hyatt that's eternal. There's a Peter Hyatt that's temporal. The temporal Peter Hyatt is revealing the glory of the eternal Peter Hyatt, which is the creation of God. Well, and the eternal Peter Hyatt um, existed in God from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and from the beginning means outside of space and time, which yeah, is the wild. Yeah, before yeah, the once you understand that we're talking about God calling the aeons into existence, that the that the you could say the eternal the aeonian Peter Hyatt then comes uh, grows up. God uses the aeons to grow up the eternal Peter Hyatt, which God already knows. Yeah, so he's it's like I'm observing the revelation of Jesus in time. I'm also reveal, observing the revelation of Peter Hyatt in time. Why? Well, because Peter Hyatt is part of Jesus. He's part of Jesus very body, which is a shocking conclusion that Paul's going to come to here yeah. later in Romans. And it, and it blows our minds because our minds are stuck in space-time as we know it. And yet we know, even physics, it's just being revealed through science or everything, that space-time is largely an illusion. Space-time itself is the dream. So it's like we're all being allowed to dream this dream of our own sovereignty, that we are the king, that we are the pharaoh, that we are the ruler. And yeah. God says, I'm going to let you dream that for a while. It's yeah. confirmed well, it is, it is interesting that, that there is kind of a dreamlike quality to our existence anyway. Yeah. None of, I, I love it in, in the movie of, oh, Inception. When, yeah. when he enters into the dream, he says, and he says to, what's her name? He says, well, when you have a dream, you're just all of a sudden there and you don't know how you got there. And he said, how did you get here? And she goes, what? Am I in a dream? And that's kind of the situation of humanity, right? We all, right. we're all find ourselves in this world going, how did I get here? What, 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 what am I? And so God is waking us up to who we truly are. So, yeah, it's beautiful. All right, let's keep on. Let's keep okay. on. We're, so we're going to make yeah. it. We're going oh, to make gosh. It. I, okay, yeah, I need to because I need to get to work on the Easter sermon. Anyway, verse 25. And let me point out a few things as we go through. As indeed he says in Hosea. Now, this is so important. Paul's assuming that we know the story of Hosea. And the story of Hosea is so fascinating because there's a, there's a, um, it's the story of Hosea, whose name is a lot like salvation. So is the name Isaiah, by the way. And he marries uh, a harlot who is going to turn into a bride. And a harlot has transactional relationships, right? So she doesn't love for free. She loves for pay. And a bride enters into a covenant where she doesn't love for pay. She All her love is worshiping and gratitude, it's free. So a harlot is not free. <laughs> and a bride is free because she enters into this covenant where she offers everything to her husband and her husband offers everything to her. So um, a vessel of mercy, if you think about this, if I'm a oh gosh, I, so I need to mention this too. When, and this is a huge theme in scripture that we just 
we don't get because we're like so screwed up at our culture. But when two people get married, according to, and this goes back to Genesis 2, they become one flesh. They become one body. Um, and so, and, and they are vessels of mercy for each other. So it, you could think about a vessel of mercy this way as a blood vessel, right? So in my mm-hmm. body, I have all these vessels. And when does one of them, I had a heart attack and because one of the vessels got clogged and my whole body got angry at that vessel and that vessel was full of itself and I would say it was angry too. So a, a vessel of wrath is a vessel that stops circulating blood. In other words, it thinks the life belongs to itself so it holds on to the life or it charges for the life. It has a transactional relationship. But in a body, the life, which is in the blood, freely flows between all the members of the body. So members of my body do not have transactional relationships with each other. And in my marriage, wherever I have a transactional relationship with my wife, it's, it's, called, it's called sin. So, so a, vessel of, a vessel of mercy in my body is a vessel that circulates the life. It freely gives the life and it freely receives the life. So you could think of that vessel, if you could think of a closed vessel, as a vessel of wrath. It doesn't circulate the life, but an open vessel is a, a blood vessel. And when two people become married, they're bound up, according to scripture, as one body and the life circulates between them. Mm-hmm. They don't have a transactional relationship. And so All right. um, All right. Let's the harlot is a vessel of the harlot's a vessel of wrath, the bride <laughs> is a vessel of mercy. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Now, this is so cool, too, because if you don't know this story, you're screwed up. And that is that Israel is God's bride. So he's, and that's the point of Hosea. God is saying, Hosea, would you you have some sympathy for me? I'm married to a harlot, and Israel is that harlot. Um, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Um, And you remember then in Isaiah, Isaiah is called to preach to Israel and preach Israel down to a stump that is a seed, which turns out to be Jesus. So Jesus is the perfected Israel. He's the true Israel. And I I think, you know, I think that only a remnant will be saved. It's more like only a remnant will be preserved. You know. Yeah, well, right. So, exactly. So, you got to define what saved means. So, does it, and actually, all of Israel is condemned. That's, that's what happens in Isaiah. And yet, Isaiah ends with this incredible hope that God has somehow miraculously saved all of Israel. It's there in the last chapter of Isaiah. So, so the harlot in Hosea is this individual v- vessel of wrath. The thing that now Paul is going to start talking about is Israel is like a corporate vessel of wrath. And now he's not just talking about the man Israel, he's talking about the sons of Israel, which turns out to be the nation of Israel. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had left us no offspring, that seed, if he hadn't left us the promised seed, the sperm, um, and that's this indestructible seed, the free will of God wrapped in a little bundle of flesh, that is Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus, we, and who's we? Israel would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Um, So Paul's going to talk about a remnant now. And the remnant turns out to be Jesus. And all of this logic makes no sense to us competitive Americans 
But in Israelites, in ancient society, Israelites, in most societies of the world, he's, he's saying because God's going to save this remnant, well, the remnant's not saved unless the whole thing is saved. Uh, the remnant is this first first fruit then. Well, let me just keep reading. What then, okay. what shall we say then? The Gentiles, the unchurched, the non-Christians who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is of faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law, and remember pursuing a law is taking knowledge of good and evil and justifying yourself, that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reach in reaching that law or that righteousness. Why? Because they did not pursue it of or from or out of faith, but as is written, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, who turns out to be Jesus, as is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brothers, this is the first verse of the next chapter. Brothers, my heart's desire, what I want, and prayer for them, Israel, my church, is that they might be saved. So Paul is hoping for all Israel to be saved, and all Israel is all these people that he's talked about that have experienced the condemnation. And that's what Paul is going to go on to talk about then in Romans 9 through 11. What's going to happen to Israel? All of Israel, not just some of Israel, but there's this remnant of Israel that God is now choosing by grace. And his whole, the whole remnant argument is that if God chooses the remnant, then he has to save the whole thing. And that's the amazing story in Isaiah is God whittles the nation of Isaiah down to the root. And then the root, lo and behold, turns out to be Jesus. And it's through what he does, trampling the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, you follow Isaiah through, that ends up getting all of Israel into the new Jerusalem in the place of the of the old Jerusalem. So, Well, what I'll just say here and kind of start, we'll start wrapping things up is that you know, sometimes you can um, you can start to feel in Romans like, oh, good grief! <laughs> well, never, I never. This is going so. There's so many twists and turns here. I'm never going to figure this thing out. And you can get discouraged. But for me, once I know that the prize is waiting for me, and that that I'm going to get to this amazing revelation that God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all, then I'm seeing that it's this wild roller coaster where. People are in and out and messing up and being corrected. And it's in it. But the whole thing is uh, it humbles all of us and it reveals the, the sovereignty of God. And then we're all just stunned how it's all worked out. Nobody's proud anymore. Everybody's amazed at the salvation that God has accomplished yeah. for all of and us. So we, if you know that that's why you're headed, it helps you to not give up when you're going Right. And court. what is God creating in us? He's creating a new a new desire. So let me end with this with this thought. The huge question that Paul is going to deal with now is what the hell is wrong with Israel? Why aren't they responding to the gospel? And it, it Paul's going to make the point and he's make all the scriptures making the points they become a, a, a they've become a, a harlot. In other words, their love for God is transactional. So God's command is love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And then we say, why should I do that? Which is just a confession that I don't want to do that, which is just a confession that I'm a harlot, which is just saying, if you want my love, God, you're going to have to pay me for it. You're going to have to pay me with something else. And so the scary thing about Romans 9 through 11 now 
is Paul's going to start revealing that Israel is the church. Um, and I think we have to come to terms with that too, that the Israel is, is really the, that organized institutional church. And, and what, is the, what is the danger? Well, the danger is that we become harlots and we, don't, we try to do what we don't want, want to do. But what is the promised seed? The promised seed is a new desire. So the bride loves the groom out of free will. In other words, she freely loves the groom. The harlot loves the groom out of obligation. So I ended that sermon. Let me just, let me just, I titled that sermon, um, uh, Why You Don't Have to Go to Church. And my point is, you don't have to church because go to church so that you would want to go to church. In other words, um, the law is that you have to go to church. Grace is, I want to go to church. I want to go give God my kisses. So I wrote this. You don't have to go to church so that you would want to go to church. And you don't have to go to heaven so that you would want to go to heaven. No one goes to heaven unless they want to go to heaven. If you don't want to go to heaven, heaven will burn like hell. And yet if you hear this as a threat, you'll never want to go to heaven. So how do we want to go to heaven? How do we get faith? In Romans 9.33, Paul reminds us of the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone and the foundation stone. Its name is Yahweh is salvation, Jesus. When we build to obtain salvation, we build the Tower of Babel, an institutional vessel of wrath, the whore of Babylon. When we are built upon it, the new Jerusalem, but when we are built up upon it, then the stone, the new Jerusalem comes down, the vessel of mercy, which is the bride of Christ. Romans 10.3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own law, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end, the perfection, the fulfillment of the law. It's the righteousness of God who hangs on the tree in the garden sanctuary of your heart. When you seek to justify yourself with knowledge of him, you become a harlot and everything dies. But when you let him kiss you, you submit to the righteousness of God, and even that is only because of his word, like because his word, like a seed, has already impregnated you with faith, hope, and love, which is the free will of God. You don't have to let him kiss you, and you don't have to go to heaven, but one day you will, because nothing is more powerful than his kiss. So all of space and time is set up to reveal the kiss of God, which is revealed in Jesus Christ and his love for us, and when we see it, it gives us a a new free will, a, a new will, a will that's free, that loves in freedom. And so it all depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, and so everything is grace. Yeah, and yep, and that's how he creates a new will within us. So it's not that we come to this thing with a free will, it's that we come to this thing dead in our trespasses and sins, and God creates a free will within us, which is freely given love, which means I freely love everything that's anything. I freely love all creation, and then all creation comes together as as one body. All right, Peter. Well, thank you for uh, uh, going over all of this with us. Look yeah. forward to when we can get together for uh, chapter 10, and uh, good. Uh, uh, wish you well in your preparation for your Easter sermon. I look forward to the next time that we get to talk. Yeah, thanks, David. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.